Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20 is our passage of Scripture today. Let me just go ahead and tell you, you're probably wondering why this big old white thing is behind me here. I don't normally have a dry erase board up on the stage. That's not my normal MO. I know some pastors do that. That is not me. I'm not a whiteboard kind of guy. But today, uh, about two-thirds of the way through the sermon, maybe even closer to the end of that, uh, I'm going to want to diagram something to help us try to get in our minds what I'm trying to communicate about God's law. So as you're finding Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, which, by the way, today is the second part of a two-part sermon. So if you weren't here last week, I apologize, but you can go back and listen to last week's sermon online, and I'm going to recap it here in a little bit. But first, if you'll permit me, just a a moment of redneck theology, okay? Um, Let me bring up a picture here, and you guys tell me what famous car this is. All right. I heard a whoop. All right. Uh, what car is that? That is the General Lee driven by Luke, Duke, and Bo Duke, the Dukes of Hazard. Now, when I was a kid growing up, we used to love watching the Dukes of Hazard. Now, as a kid, it was a, it was a tame show. I never saw, and I don't want to see, and I don't recommend anybody see the movie that came out called Dukes of Hazard because, from what I understand, it was a raunchy movie. But the show, when you were a kid, was a... For the most part, clean, fun. I used to have a Dukes of Hazard car, a little orange car with all the stickers and everything on it. And I would build ramps and I would shoot, shoot that thing. And it was plastic and it lived forever. I mean, it could crash through anything. Just like on the show, the car never has a dent on it, right? That, that was my little plastic car. But the reason I show you the, the Dukes of Hazard this morning, you're thinking, Steve, you have gone off the deep end. The music's scriptural, but you're not. Just hang with me. Does anybody remember the, the theme song of the Dukes of Hazard? Yeah? Can someone give me the first few lines? Any kids in here know the song? Don't sing it. Daryl? Just the good old boys, never meaning no harm. Beats all you ever saw. Been in trouble with the law. What? Since the day they was born. Total depravity, right? Yeah. From the day they was born. (laughs) That's redneck theology, right? From the day they was born, they've been in trouble with the law. Now, in the Dukes of Hazard, there's a formula, because all 80s shows and 70s and 80s shows had just followed the same formula every week. I don't know why we didn't get bored with it, but same formula. There was a formula um, that happened a lot of times in the show where they'd be running away from the law, trying to get away from Boss Hogg and, and um, um, Roscoe and the whole gang and and they'd be running away from the law, and they'd jump over a few things in the process. And they'd be heading towards what? They'd be heading towards the county line. Because so long as they got beyond the county line, they were outside the reach of Roscoe and Boss Hogg and all those fellas. They were outside of their jurisdiction. And so they were, from the day they were born, they were, they were running from the law and... The show goes, they're always running from the law, and they're always getting away from the law by getting past that county line. Now, the reason this show and that whole formula of that show came to mind this week was because I think that sometimes people approach the law of God, especially when we talk about the Old Testament law of God, they approach it like the Dukes of Hazzard, thinking that, We have somehow, now that we are New Testament people, crossed the county line. And we're no longer under the jurisdiction 
of the old covenant law. And I believe that is a dangerous way to view the law of God. Matter of fact, I think it is contrary to the very things Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Because in reality, we all have been born. Beats all you ever saw have been in trouble with the law from the day we were born. And we have been running from the law from the day we were born. And nobody can get outside of the reach of God's law. But those who are redeemed, those who have been brought into Christ, who is ultimately our law keeper, our relationship to the law has changed somewhat. But the law is still there. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. So let's read that passage of Scripture this morning. Go ahead and turn there if you would. If you're not already there, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. This is a continuation of our sermon series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. So please stand if you would as we get ready to read this passage of Scripture. We, read, we stand because we are honoring God's Word. We want to honor Him and honor the, the authority, the infallibility of this book that we have here, this Word of God. Now, before I read, let me just mention to you, because I want you to see this as we read, this passage of Scripture breaks into two very natural parts. Verses 17 through 18, the first two verses, are about Jesus' relationship to the law. And then verses 19 and 20 are about our relationship to the law in light of Jesus' relationship to the law. So with that in mind, last week we preached that first part. This week we're going to preach that second part. Uh, But ultimately, it all goes together. So let's read the whole passage of Scripture, beginning in verse 17 through verse 20. The Word of the Lord says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we acknowledge, off the bat, we are in total and desperate need for you to interpret your word to us. Jesus, you are the lens through which we want to look at this passage of Scripture and we want to look at all the passages of Scripture that we have available to us. So God, I pray that you'd protect us from error. I pray that you'd open up our ears to hear, open up my mouth to speak. Heavenly Father, I feel a weight with this sermon because... This is a very heavy topic, really, when we think about your law. So, Lord, I pray that you grant all of us grace as we uh, go into this time of preaching now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, let me, do, let me remind you of what we looked at last week. Let me start off with that, and that will take us into this week's sermon. Last week, like I said, we looked at those first two verses of this passage of Scripture in Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18 were the ones we looked at. And the first thing we we noticed last week, there are three things that Jesus declares about the Old Testament in this passage. First of all, Jesus declares the comprehensive inspiration of the whole 
Old Testament. And we see that in verse 18. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. So Jesus says even the tiniest little strokes, the tiniest dots, the tiniest elements of the law of God, the Old Testament, none of it will pass away until it's all accomplished. So he has a comprehensive view of the inspiration of the entire Old Testament. Secondly, we saw that Jesus declares his authoritative jurisdiction over all the Old Testament. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, and we looked at that phrase right there, that that word truly means amen, I say to you. That was a, an authority claim. No one else spoke like that. But Jesus, all throughout the gospel, says stuff like a truly, truly I say, or truly I say to you. And what that is is an authority claim. He needs no one else to back up what he's going to say. What he says is truth. And he says so here in this passage that we're looking at today. Jesus also, the third thing we looked at last week, is Jesus declares himself to be the ultimate realization of the Old Testament or the intention of it. He himself is the ultimate realization of the Old Testament. That's what he means when he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them or to accomplish them. So Jesus fulfills and accomplishes the Old Testament in five different ways. First of all, he is the interpretation of its meaning. Hebrews 1.1, long ago and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is our hermeneutical lens, our interpretive lens for the entire Old Testament, not vice versa. Jesus is our starting point. The old is interpreted in the light of the new. That is a very important hermeneutical principle to have down or things might end up going awry. Next thing we see is that he is the intention of its history. John 5, 46, if you believe Moses, you believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And all the Old Testament speaks of Jesus, not just the prophetic works, uh, not just um, the passages of Scripture that we usually think of at Christmas time that are fulfilled by his coming, but every, even the history of Israel itself points to Jesus. Next thing we saw is that he is the completion of its promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. He is the completion of all those prophetic promises. Promises made in the Old Testament, promises kept in Jesus in the New Testament. Next thing we saw is he is the actualization of its rituals. Meaning that these Old Testament rituals were signs and shadows pointing to Jesus who is the substance. Colossians 2.17. These are the shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And then finally we looked at that he is the perfection of its demands. Meaning that Jesus is the one who kept every single iota of the law. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So this is what we looked at last week. And that's why Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then we come to today's passage. Verse 19, and it begins with the word, therefore. Therefore, in light of everything 
that Jesus just said about himself and the law, in light of that, here's what the believer, what the kingdom citizen is to think about the law. Remember, Jesus at the very beginning of this passage is correcting our thinking. Do not think. There is bad ways to think about the law. Like I said earlier, people that think that they can get outside the jurisdiction of the law or they're somehow out from under the law because they're in the New Testament. So there are bad ways to think. Jesus doesn't want us to think wrongly. And so that's what we come to here. Therefore. Therefore is an important word in the Scriptures. Conjunctions are important. Arguments make sense because of words like therefore. It is the hinge of this passage of Scripture here. Jesus did not come to abolish but to fulfill and to complete the law. Therefore. So. I think what most people want to hear is so, therefore, we're off the hook. We don't have anything to do. But that's not what Jesus says. This passage tells us how kingdom citizens should relate to the law. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now this is a challenging passage and on the surface it may even seem to contradict other passages of scripture where where Paul says the gospel is the end of the law and so we need to think well through these things this is a startling verse Jesus is saying the Old Testament law is not to be relaxed it's not to be minimized it's not to be marginalized Yet that's exactly how many people view the Old Testament in general and God's moral law as something that's no longer important, no longer relevant, no longer applicable in any sense to the Christian. I'm afraid many people view the blank page between Malachi and Matthew as the county line. Like we've escaped the big bad sheriff called law and now we've entered into a new jurisdiction under a good sheriff named Grace. People will say all the time, we're not under law, we're under grace, right? It's mercy, not judgment, right? We're in a new era, a new epoch, a new dispensation. So the old era, the old epoch, the old dispensation no longer applies to us. But we can't just dismiss what Jesus says here. We can't just throw away his words. We have to take them at face value. He's speaking to his disciples, so he's speaking to us. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Does that not freak you out? I don't want to be called least in the kingdom of the heaven. I don't want to get in with my shirt burning like the First Corinthians 3 person who builds on the church with wood, hay, and straw and his works are burned up, but he gets in but as through fire. I want to live a life that brings glory to God In every way that I can, I don't want to be the person of this passage. Now, when Jesus says these commandments here, we need to define what that is. We need to define what he means when he says these commandments. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. Now, I believe, and I think the majority of scholars would agree, that this is best to be understood as the Old Testament commandments. The grammar here does not suggest in any way that Jesus is now changing the topic to some sort of new commandments. He's been speaking about the law and the prophets. He's been speaking about the law. And it's to these things that he is surely referring to here. Now there are some, like good scholars like D.A. Carson, who believe that these commandments actually refers to the commandments Jesus is about to give in the rest of Matthew 5. You know, where in the rest of this chapter, there are six times where Jesus will say something along the lines of, you have heard it said, but I say to you. 
Well, I don't necessarily dismiss that because I do think it includes these commandments, but, but not at the exclusion of the Old Testament commandments. And I say this because Jesus' six commands that he gives here in the rest of Matthew 5 are simply Jesus taking the Old Testament commandments and interpreting them rightly and thus expanding their gravity and their reach beyond the foolish interpretations of the scribes and the Pharisees. These guys simply focused on the external aspects of law-keeping. And Jesus comes down, and he's not making a new commandment. He's explaining and interpreting the old commandments, the old commandments that are eternal in their nature. So, he is saying that we are not to relax one of the least of these Old Testament commandments. And what does this word relax mean? Well, the word means to loose or to, to unbind. To unbind the law is to bring people out from under their obligation to obey it. We know that doing or obeying the law is what Jesus has in mind here. Because if we look at the contrasting statement, it says here, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But, and here's the contrast, but whoever does them and teaches them. So relax is corresponding with does. So the opposite of relaxing the law is to do the law. So we are to do the law and we are to teach the law according to this passage of Scripture. Jesus tells kingdom citizens not to think that they can stop doing the law and not to teach others to stop doing God's law. So there's two points here that are real clear just right out of the passage that I want to elaborate upon this morning. Here's the first one. Kingdom citizens are to be teachers of the Old Testament law because it drives men to Christ. Friends, One of the reasons that the Old Testament commands are still active and have not been fully abrogated is that the moral law that undergirds the entire Old Testament is what drives men to their need for a Savior. The therefore in verse 19 shows us that the reason we continue to teach the law is that Christ is himself the fulfiller of the law and all men need to be pointed to him. All men need to be pointed to Jesus for grace. Because all men are lawbreakers. We were all born lawbreakers. Whoever wrote the Dukes of Hazard song, I know he didn't mean it that way, but he got it right from the day we were born. All men must see their law problem, and all men must know they are lawbreakers, for the works of the law are written on all men's hearts. It's just that all men try to suppress that truth. The moral law of God which is the framework for all the Old Testament commands, has always been hanging over the head of mankind since the fall. And it's that law that drives men to grace. People talk about law and gospel or law and grace like they're enemies. I hate that. Like it's, like it's a duel or something. Like there's two guys walking with a pistol. One's law and one's grace and they're going to turn and shoot each other and grace always wins. That is not the way to see law and gospel or law and grace. They go together. They go hand in hand. Without the law, there is no gospel. As we've often stated here, without the bad news, there's no good news. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Let's look at this text a little bit closer. This Romans 3.19. Those who are under the law, that means everyone. It says, so that every mouth may be stopped. Every mouth. That leaves man speechless, without excuse. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. God's law has universal authority. 
Man has no self-exonerating testimony to give. No exculpatory evidence to present. He is guilty and the just sentence for his guilt is death. If man could keep the law, well then he could live. But he can't. So he is sentenced to death. Since the fall, all men have been born sinners. Therefore, continuing in Romans 3, we see the next verse is verse 20. It says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, the law, friends, is necessary to make men aware of their sins, so it is good and is meant to drive people to grace. Galatians 3.22, but the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So Jesus here is not eliminating the law. Nor does he give us any grounds to. Matter of fact, we must teach the law. You may hear something like this said today. Well, at our church we teach gospel, not the law. Well... I think what people probably mean by that is that they don't teach legalism. People say, oh, we we don't teach law, we teach gospel. But it's wrong to equate legalism with the proper use of God's law. Matter of fact, an improper use of the law is actually what leads to legalism. Because the law itself leads people to grace. Then, therefore, I think it's easy to conclude that the absence of the law leads people to themselves. The presence of the law... And people realize their depravity and their poverty of spirit leads people to the cross, to grace. The absence of the law leads people to assume they can do something on their own. So it's not the presence of the law that leads to legalism in church. It's actually the opposite. It's the absence of the law that leads to legalism in the church. Um, J. Gresham Machen said this. If you don't know who he was, he fought the good fight fighting for the truth during an era when liberalism, or um, I think at the time it was called modernism, was infecting pretty much every denomination. I think Mason was instrumental in founding uh, Westminster Seminary up in Philadelphia. But he said this, A new and more powerful proclamation of the law is perhaps the most pressing need of the hour. Men would have little difficulty with the gospel if they had only learned the lesson of the law. So it always is, and this is Mason's words, A low view of the law brings legalism in religion. A high view of the law makes man a seeker after grace. So friends, we must preach and we must teach the moral law of God for it teaches us the character of God. The law is the reflection of the character of God, the nature of God, the glory of God. So that's why just a few verses later in this passage in Romans 3 that we've looked at, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. Yes, the law shows us God, but it also shows us us. The law reveals the character of God, and it also reveals the condition of man. But how often do we neglect the law in our church culture today? I think it can be seen in what we teach our children. I found this interesting in my study this week. Okay, you probably all know this. What is the first verse that children learn in the modern American church? John 3, 16. Do you know what the first passage of Scripture that the Puritans and even the Puritans who came over to America, you know what they taught their children? The first thing, it wasn't John 3, 16. The moment the child could begin to learn and memorize, you know what they taught them? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were what they taught them. 
We must teach people that they're under the curse of the law. Only then will John 3.16 be sweet. Oh, friends, this is how we must be if we are kingdom citizens. We teach men that there is a perfect and perpetual law of God that all men are under. And as we teach the law, it functions like a mirror, enlightening man to his poverty of spirit, which consequently drives him to grace. That's why whoever teaches the commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For to do so is to give God glory, the glory that he is due by calling men to acknowledge his character. And it brings men into the kingdom as they recognize their condition and turn to their creator in repentance. That's a great kingdom worker who's doing that. But there are some who will be called least in the kingdom. These are those who disregard and disparage and bring God's law into disrepute with their easy grace antinomianism. Their heart may be in the right place. They love people and they want to make it easier for them to come into the kingdom. But friends, lawless preaching produces repentance-less convictions that prove to be false conversions which subsequently bring shame to the church and to the name of Christ. If the law is not preached, God's name is defamed. If the law were not necessary to bring true conversion, friends, well then the gate would be wide and the way would be easy. But Jesus says the opposite. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to eternal life. It's hard because men first must be brought to a low position, to a poverty of spirit to see their condition in the light of God's nature, in the light of God's character, and it is the law that does that. We cannot be antinomians. Jesus won't allow it. We must teach it, and it will drive men to grace, and so when men find grace, they no longer need to worry about keeping the law, right? That's what people think. Now, here's the next error. All right, okay, so we drive people to grace now that they've come to Christ and, okay, the law, therefore, is no longer important. Hmm. Well, according to Jesus, kingdom citizens teach it and they keep it. And that's my next point. Kingdom citizens are to be keepers of the Old Testament law because it flows from our union to Christ. So not only are we to be teachers of the law, driving men to Christ, we are to be keepers of the law. Because it flows out of people who have been united to Christ. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Friends, we must see that only when we have been driven to grace can we actually be keepers of the law anyway. Prior to faith in Christ, law keeping was impossible for us. But now in Christ it is possible and it is expected. Therefore, in light of Christ being the fulfillment and the accomplisher of the law, and only in light of that, remember, therefore is an important word, only in light of what Christ did in verses 17 through 18, are we now able to be law keepers. Not only are we able to, we want to. We want to. Now, you're probably asking the question if you've not already. Steve, do you mean we're to keep all the Old Testament law? including all those funny food laws and those ceremonies and those feasts and, and all those bloody sacrifices? Well, of course not. To explain that, I want to talk about the law, and this is where the diagram will come in here in a second. I want to talk about the law. Now, I want to break down the law into three categories. 
And I worked this week really hard on trying to decide if I thought the law should be broken down into two categories or three categories. And here's what I mean. Obviously, there's a category called God's moral law. Now, let me stop here, just parentheses. As I'm going through these categories of the law, or, or I should say um, uh, category may not be the right word, but these expressions of God's law maybe is a better word. As I'm going through these, you may be saying, where are you getting that from? Show me the verse that breaks it down to moral, ceremonial, civil law. Well, actually, uh, I don't have time to today, but I would gladly do that. That's why I've come to this conclusion even this week that there definitely is three breakdowns in the law because I think it's clearly actually taught in Scripture. Okay, it's kind of like the Trinity, though. You're not going to find the verse that says, bang, bang, bang. Nor are you going to find the verse that says, Trinity, in it. But you put the accumulation of Scripture together and you see these things. First of all, there is the moral law, sometimes called the natural law or the primordial law. This is God's overarching and eternal law. It is perpetual. It is perfect. This is the reflection of his character. And God can no more set aside this law than he can set aside his own nature. It exists because God exists. God's moral law is embedded in each human being, for each human being has been made in the image of God. The fall marred that image, yet the works of the law are still written on men's heart, according to Romans 2.15, meaning that all men know that there is a moral law. There's not a single man living that does not know there is a moral law. You can prove that when you want to go up and punch him in the face. That's the moment he believes there is moral law. But he already knew it in his heart. He's just suppressed it. But secondly, in the scriptures, we see ceremonial and civil laws. Sometimes people will bound that into one category called ritual law. Or we give it some other labels as well. But these two categories were given to a specific people at a specific time in a specific place. These were the laws given to the geopolitical theocratic entity known as Israel. The ceremonial laws were given to direct them and how they were to worship God. And the civil laws were given to them to direct them how they were to be governed under God. These were connected to and flowed out of God's eternal moral law. But they were not themselves eternal. For they were fulfilled and completed upon the coming of the true Israel of God, the obedient Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true and final Israel of God. So let me, let me try to illustrate this in a diagram. Hang with me here. This is an experiment this morning, right? So I'm going to write over here just moral law. Moral law. And God's moral law, and I'm going to put arrows at both ends of this, is Eternal. Eternal. It exists because God exists. If it's a reflection of his character, his character didn't start. It's always been. So that's God's moral law. It exists, as I said, because he exists. And then God, in the beginning, created man. I'm going to draw a little earth here. Ready? So this is the creation of the world. There we go. All right. Here's our little planet. God created man. And he created man in his what? In his image. He created him to image himself. To reflect his character. To reflect who he is. And man, by nature of being created in the image of God, by nature of being created in the image of God, he was in covenant with God. And the terms of his covenant was to keep God's law. But he transgressed. And of course we know that man plunged into sin. And all humanity with Adam Inherited not only Adam's sinful nature, but Adam's guilt. So all men remain under the law, 
and now are under the curse of God's moral law because all men have sinned. Now the ceremony of civil laws came at Mount Sinai to ethnic Israel. And so I'm going to just kind of come off this line right here and draw a little thing like this, and then I'm going to bring it to a stop right here. And I'm going to call this line the ceremonial and civil laws. The ceremonial civil laws of Israel. These were given to govern the nation of Israel to govern and guide the practices of a theocratic state. But the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, if you will, were the centerpiece of the Mosaic Law and were themselves the summary of God's moral law. He gave the Ten Commandments first and foremost, so I'm going to put the two little tablets here. There's our Ten Commandments. God gave the Ten Commandments in great power and the, the mountain shook and he was declaring his moral law which didn't come into existence at that point. It's not that the moral law came into existence at this point. Cain murdered before murder was ever written on a piece of stone. The moral law always existed. The Ten Commandments are a summary, if you will, of that moral law. Now, God's moral law stood and stands forever. It transcends Israel, both before and after The moral law of God transcends Israel. Now the ceremonial civil laws along with the entire nation of Israel were types and shadows as we've already read in Colossians 2, 16. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. So these things were types and shadows pointing to Christ who upon coming onto the scene as the obedient son called up out of Egypt fulfilled and completed all the ceremonial and civil laws for he is the true Israel. So I'm going to put a little arrow right here on the end of these laws and right here I'm going to put a cross. The civil and ceremonial laws pointed to Christ, all the festivals, the ceremonies, and of course the sacrifices. Secondly, the civil and ceremonial laws were set by God, given to the ethnic Jewish people, to set them apart from what? Gentiles. Right? So one of the reasons that the ceremonial civil laws have been done away in Christ is because Gentiles have been brought into the Israel of God. Gentiles have been brought in to God's people. Ephesians 2.11 Therefore remember that you at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus... United to Christ Jesus, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How? Verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. By abolishing the law and commands and the ordinances and making one man, friends. 
that he created in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That is awesome truth. What's more is that the moral law, not only are the civil and ceremonial laws fulfilled in Christ, the moral law was perfectly kept by Christ. For he is the image of the invisible God, the perfect image of God. For in him all the fullness of God dwells bodily, and thus he is the perfect keeper of all the law. So now all those who have repented of their sins and turned to Christ alone are united to him. All those are united to him by faith. And in him, he has become our law keeper. He's the law giver, and he is our law keeper. So now, all who repent of their sins and turn from him, these ceremonial civil laws, they've been swallowed up in him, for they pointed to him. They are now, therefore, no longer binding on those who are in Christ, for they are finished in Christ. They served as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. The substance has come and the shadows have faded. So the civil and ceremonial laws have been done away with, but the moral law is kept on our behalf, and it's credited to us, and it continues forever. And what's more, now the law is written on our hearts. Now the law is written on our hearts. So now we want to do God's law, God's eternal moral law, and we are empowered because Christ has given us his spirit, and now we are empowered to obey God's law. This is because we have regenerated hearts. We are new creations in Christ. We are new creations created again, being transformed by God's grace. So friends, here we are at creation, and now here we are at recreation. Thus, as we are made into the image of Christ, we more and more and more reflect the law of God. And it increasingly becomes manifest in us. Therefore, we are called to be keepers of the law. We are called to be keepers of the law. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We keep the moral law of God. We keep it because it has been written on our hearts. Now, much of the moral law, the Decalogue, or, or the Ten Commandments, if you will, is repeated in the New Testament. Pretty much all of it is repeated in the New Testament. And I would say, yes, that's part of what makes it binding because Jesus restates it and reinterprets it and gives us a more clear view of it. But friends, it is not solely because Jesus restates it in the New Testament. It's because it's eternal. It's eternal. And so everything that Jesus teaches us in the New Testament is a continuation of the eternal law of God. So here's some summary for your notes. I'm just going to bring all this up at once because i got so much information to try to get to you guys today. Here, here we go. I'm just going to go through these quick. Jesus has kept and completed the law for all his people. Jesus has implanted and written the law on the hearts of all his people. Therefore, all his people are empowered to carry out and live by the law of Christ that is within them. Exodus 31, 18. Look at these three texts. Hey, you know this one. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai... The two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. So who wrote the Ten Commandments? God did. What law is that? It's the eternal moral law of God. 
Then we go to Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when, they, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Listen to this. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So who did God promise would write the law on the hearts of his people? He would. What law? The eternal moral law of God. So we come to 2 Corinthians 3, 3, where Paul is trying to argue with the Corinthians about um, his authority as an apostle. And he comes to this, and he says in 2 Corinthians 3, 3, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. And then he says in verse 6, Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit? For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. God has written down the moral law on men's hearts at creation, but men fell on stone tablets, but men broke those. And then he promised he would one day write it on men's hearts, and he kept that promise in the new covenant of Christ's blood, a law now written on the hearts of new creations, unlike the letter's on tablets that condemned us, this law is the law of life. It is Christ in us. So let me try to bring this kind of all into a conclusion here. It's not that the new covenant ushers in a new law. It's that the new covenant enables man to keep the old law, a very old law, an eternal law. We did not want to keep it before, but now under the new covenant, we do want to keep it and we're empowered to keep it. And that's why Jesus tells his kingdom citizens to keep it. We don't keep it to try to gain something from God. Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. No, our righteousness is from God by faith. So that when you're united to Christ, we are positionally already law keepers. But there's more. Now that we're united to Christ, His Spirit dwells in us and drives us and enables us to keep the law. Oh, how too many churches in our day, I'm afraid, have been sold a bill of goods. They have been told that the law of God is not important. And instead, we just need to be free. Oh, friends, only when we have the law written on our hearts are we truly free. Free from the condemnation and the burden and the curse of the law. Free to finally obey the law, for it's now our heart's desire. That's why the law written on the heart is called the law of liberty. Not liberty to avoid God's moral law. Liberty to obey it. James 1.25, which I think many of you guys read in your small groups this week. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. We are freed. We are freed to obey. We are freed to love. For the love of God is the law of God. God's law is to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our fellow man as ourselves. And that's what the gospel frees us to do. And that's what the gospel motivates us to do. And that's what the gospel enables us to do. So the gospel enables us to obey from the heart, which is why Jesus ends this section of Scripture saying, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This would have shocked many of Jesus' hearers. The scribes and the Pharisees were the cream of the crop. They were the most religious. Yet Jesus says they are not in the kingdom. And unless you have a radically superior righteousness to theirs... You won't be there either. So what's he saying? He's saying that the righteousness that God requires is a righteousness that flows from the heart. It's more than just external conformity. 
It flows from the heart, a heart that has been made new. So unbeliever, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you're not a Christian. You need a new heart, friend. You are under the condemnation of the law. The works of the law are written on your stony heart, and it's, you have a calloused conscience. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Hear that truth, friend. You are in big trouble if you're an unbeliever here. You have been in trouble with the law since the day you were born, and there is no county line that you can run to. That's bad news. You're a lawbreaker. And as we'll see in the rest of Matthew 5, even the laws you think you haven't broken, you have broken. Oh, friend, it's not that I or any Christian in here is better than you. We were all in the same sinking boat of humanity. Titus 3.3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It was the law that drove us to Christ. And it's the law under which you stand that must drive you to Christ. And believer, for all the believers here this morning, let us not despise or discard God's law. No, we are no longer under it like a slave. Instead, we are now free. We are free to live it, free to love it, free to love God and free to love men. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Friends, Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning I just ask for your mercy and your grace as we continue to worship and as we get ready to sing. Father, none of us in here can hold our head up high and say, wow, look at what a great law keeper I am. None of us in here can claim any sort of a superiority. Oh Lord, I pray that we don't express any kind of superiority when we're around unbelievers. Because we were all in the same boat. We've just been saved by grace. And our hope is that they will be saved by grace. And if that's truly our hope, Lord, we will share with them the law. And we will do it carefully. And we will do it truthfully. And we will do it as gently as your law allows us to do it. But God, don't let us walk away from the law and promise liberty to people who aren't free. Father, I'm afraid, Lord, that one of the problems in many churches today is simply that we preach freedom instead of law to unbelievers. We sing songs, you're free to live, you're free to dance. And there's unbelievers sitting in the pews that don't even realize they're not free, they're shackled. They need the law, they need to hear, they need to know what's binding them. 
And so, God, I pray that we would be that kind of church, that we'd be faithful to preach the whole counsel of God. And that we would not believe the false teaching that the law is no longer important. That it can just be sort of thrown away. Oh, Father, if we believe that, and if we are in the kingdom of heaven after believing that, then all we are is the least of the kingdom of heaven. Father, we want to be great, not to exalt ourselves, but because people who live for you and glorify you and put you above themselves are indeed great in the kingdom of heaven. So, Lord, we ask now that you would take this remaining time we have. Lord, if there be anybody here who does not know you, who has not come into saving faith, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, trusted him alone for their salvation, they've been trying to keep their own law, I pray, Father, that you convict them of their sins and bring them to the truth this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.